Welcome to the Haunted Hacker Podcast version April point two. This is the second one for this month already. Crazy. Um, before we get started, I'll give you a little bit of news and updates. Uh, I'll be speaking in Washington, D.C. on the 14th um, at the Tech Strong live event and teaching people how to hack Android phones. Um, the Haunted Hacker uh, Threat Intel Report, um, kind of a bait, went out today. And uh, you'll see a lot of uh, RF and uh, radio signals between Russia and Ukraine that's been published in that, in that threat report. So take a look at it. And without further ado, I want to introduce you to a very fascinating uh, guest that we have today. We're really lucky to have him. Um, Richard Thame. How are you doing, Richard? And thank you for good. being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always great to have a good conversation with a good human being. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and fascinating background and uh, tell us kind of how you got in cyber and your journey and, and what you've been through. Okay. Let me try to keep it as short as I can because... Uh, <laughs> of necessity, my complex journey. I mean, you live long enough, right? Mm -hmm. Old buildings, whores, uh, everybody gets respectable if they live long enough, <laughs> to, uh, you know, across in uh, Chinatown. Uh, at any rate, uh, I was an Episcopal clergyman, right? And before that, I taught English literature and I loved literature. Uh, once I found it, I couldn't get enough of good literature, how it was constructed, complex, beautiful, uh, and as close to the truth as a human being can articulate. Right brain, not scientific truth, but truth nevertheless, and a comprehensive uh, truth full of feeling and full of nuance and subtlety. So I loved literature. And I taught it at the University of Illinois. And I changed my path in my late 20s, nearly 30, went through some life-changing experiences. And the best way to handle those was to join the Anglican Church. I was living in England. And I came back here and became an Anglican clergyman. And I did that for 16 years in three different parishes. And uh, because of my unique background, uh, I've lived as a minority in five different ways. So I'm, I'm used to encountering cultures that are not mine uh, and, and learning how to suss out the context out of which they speak, live, and move, but usually without knowing it. Because if you've never, I mean, I'm in Minnesota right now, and people who grew up here don't know that epistemology and ontology are the same thing for them. They think what they think is real uh, because they're so assimilated by the culture. Uh, but I learned to see past that because you have to, as a minority, uh, whether African-American or woman or Jew or what, uh, this is about the first generation that I used to say you could be, uh, express your anger at how you're treated uh, without being killed for it. Uh, but that's changing. Uh, once again, you can be killed for it. Um, but women always, because violence was private at home for women. So, so I had a unique trajectory and, and did very, very well in the ministry on the edges of things. Uh, meanwhile, I bought my son uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, an Infocom game uh, years and years and years ago. We loved Infocom. I thought it was going to be the way of the gaming future. Uh, but as you know, I mean, since nobody's shot dead, it isn't. Uh, there's nothing but shooting in games that seem to proliferate and, and uh, go wildly popular. Uh, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and some of their others, like Trinity, were just works of art, just beautiful interactive fiction, which because I knew fiction and done a lot of writing, uh, I thought this is, this is where it's going to, going to be. And I was playing that game with my son 
when uh, I realized that this really was the way way of the future, that interactivity was going to be the determining structure of how humans related at a new level, which was digital. Now, because I knew literature, I had a good sense of how text works. Uh, and my perception playing that game was what is happening to me, I remember thinking, is not the same as when I read a book. A book discloses a horizon of possibility through the text. The digital world discloses it through branching if this, then that junctions and, and options that make a different perspective. And it seems to go on forever. It seems like when you did those interactive games that the options were endless. They weren't, they were constrained but it felt like they were endless in a different way than literature, which defined the parameters of your vision. And so I thought, my God, this is gonna to be totally different. Religion, which I was articulating on behalf of a community at the time, religion is literature. Religion is based on words. Religion, religion is based on uh, literary transactions in a community. Uh, people don't often see it that way, but religions as we understood them, uh, come from the printing press. In other words, way back when there were oral religions, right? Uh, Christians called them Baals, which was a way of making them all wrong. But there were just a lot of religions and they were oral. And once writing took place, it transformed human consciousness. And, and now oral religions either vanished or were translated into writing. And then that, that huge meta leap took place again with the printing press, which is why we have Protestants. There wouldn't be any, wouldn't be any Luther. Uh, Luther is a print, print, a, a digital uh, human now, a digital being. He was a print being, but translating it into digital again transforms it. And I thought this is going to be as big as the printing press. This is as big as writing. And I start writing essays. The first one was called uh, "Computer Applications for Spirituality: The Transformation of Religious Experience." on how the structures, forms, ideation, everything in what we thought of as religions is once more gonna go through a looking glass of absolute transformation. Well, I couldn't get that published. They wrote it, wrote in the margins when they sent it back from the Anglican Theological Review, he must be crazy. He's mad, who does he think he is? Literally, uh, that was one of the steps toward, I can't stay in a suffocating environment where people can't comprehend reality, because I saw bing, 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 what was gonna happen? I see the future sometimes more clearly than I see what's right in front of me, uh, but I connect the dots. Uh, and, and, and so finally a new editor found that essay and published it and said, this is so cutting edge. But my tech friend said, it's not cutting edge anymore. You're referring to moos and mushes. <laughs> you remember those? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just, it was archaic, my technical references. But the insight on how it was going to transform human interaction, religious structures. Uh, now it's all here. Uh, a lot of what I said is coming, has come, but because it came gradually in the context of the digital transformation of society entirely, people almost didn't notice how radical the change to have satellite churches and in interactive uh, sermons and so on and so forth. So I was being offered the jobs I thought I always wanted. Um, you know, it takes a while for cognitive dissonance to build. You got a good career, you got golden handcuffs called a pension, and I realized I would die. 
If I took the jobs that were offered, Bishop of Connecticut was one, uh, Trinity Boston, the biggest church in the Episcopal Church orbit. Um, and they came for an interview and the guy said afterward, he said, you've got everything we want in a new leader, but one thing. And I said, what's that one thing? And he said, we got the feeling you don't want us. And I said, boy, you got it. I don't want you and I don't want any other parish. I'm out of here. And it wasn't quite like that, but that's how it felt. And I was out of there. And I announced to my wife, I said, it's over. I felt perfect peace. Mm -hmm. uh, God called me in, God called me out. Long live God. And so I left that structure and said, I'm going to speak and write full time and dedicate myself to articulating what I see and see if there's a place. Well, that was 1993. And you could do something commercially on the internet in 1993 for the first time. It had been prohibited prior to that year. And so I could have a website. They were brand new. USA Today found my website, called it a website of the week. That's how few there were. And I was asked by the uh, was it Wisconsin professional engineers. They said, we hear about this thing, cyberspace. What is that? Would you write a column for us telling us what it is? So my first column in uh, what I called Islands in the Clickstream, places to stop and pause uh, and reflect on what this is that's happening was called What is Cyberspace? And they said, oh, they loved it. Could you do another? So I did one called Dreams Engineers Have. And then I did Games Engineers Play and so on. And pretty soon I said to friends, there's this thing email. Can I attach these columns and send them to you? Within a couple of years, they're going to 60 countries and thousands of subscribers. And uh, Singris approached me at DEF CON and said, can we bring out a collection? And at the age of 60, 2004, that was my very first book, collection of 150 Islands in the Clickstream columns. <clears throat> so also, I say they approached me at DEF CON. You cannot underestimate in my history the importance of DEF CON. Um, I wrote to Jeff Moss uh, when he was preparing DEF CON 4, and he had put out a word that somehow I got through email. I'm looking for a keynoter. And I said, oh, I talk about this stuff. And he said, well, sure, come on. You know, his genius, among other aspects of his genius, is he gives people a chance. Mm -hmm. And if it works, he keeps them. And if it doesn't, he doesn't. Uh, but people love to go to DEF CON and volunteer for no money to please let me be here and serve you and make you a millionaire. So that was the deal. We all agreed. And uh, no, no resentment about that. The payoff was tremendous. Last year, I spoke at DEF CON for the 25th straight year. Wow. I don't think anybody's done that. And each year, it's a challenge to come up with a new way of framing uh, on the basis of what I said, I saw the revolutionary transformation of society through digital communication and information technologies. Um, so, it, so this is what I have thrived on and what I've loved. Uh, plus, I met a lot of people there from NSA and CIA who became the closest friends I would say I've ever had. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of them. One, one died, one has Alzheimer's tragic, but I used to spend hours and hours and hours in conversation with these friends and even did some work along the way for different places where they worked, but above all, learned how things worked in their world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the security world, uh, I've now keynoted conferences, security conferences in 15 countries. And for me, bringing what I did from the ministry, the bottom line is what I love is the exchange of information and energy for people, with people, mm. and trying to make those transactions win-win. 
I did an early talk at DEF CON about social engineering and you can raise your game from win-lose to win-win. You still win, but if you make it profitable for other people, it's called society, right? I mean, I mean then, then it works for everybody. And I've gotten to know people all over the world and they, I, I can't imagine a better, more exciting, more vital community than all the various people in intelligence and security with whom I have been privileged to engage and learn from. So the bottom line is I am the dumbest, most ignorant person in the room every conference I go to. And that's why I learn more than anybody else. Because if your cup is half full, you can only fill it another half. I come in empty every time, come early, stay late. And I have learned from colleagues and friends over almost, well, it's 25, 30 years almost. That's, um, that's how, amazing. How, how, to, how to think in this world. And I love it. I, I, I love it. And it's cutting edge. And it challenges you constantly to accept the ambiguity and complexity of the world in which you live. Don't get high horse on anybody. Don't get moral high ground on anybody because the world is 100% gray. And in the ministry, I knew that and lived out of it. But there were some people in the religious world that said, oh, no, it's black and white. No, it is not. And if you think you have a clue, uh, the first sign that you might have a clue is when you realize that you do not Don't have a clue. Exactly, exactly. So you, you have a lot that's of... The that's the short story, believe it or not. <laughs> so, so you have a lot of background that, that really fascinates me. What I'm when I was a little kid, the first thing I ever wanted to be, and this is probably news to a lot of people, the first thing I wanted to be was a priest. Oh. And so I, I dove off into, you know, the, the Catholic religion and Catholicism. You know, I, I've been around the world to different uh, religious uh, sites, you know, in Cyprus. And, and I went to Buddhist temples in, in Singapore uh, right. because religion really fascinates me because it's a collection of, of stories plus it, it, it's symbology and it talks about human behavior and psychology. Um, so it kind of all played into kind of like my development. But what I found really interesting is when I started going outside of those lines a little bit and, and looking at some of the more esoteric and some of the more non-mainstream, uh, I guess, followings like Freemasonry. Um, I became a Freemason in 2005 and was excommunicated from the Catholic Church for doing so. Uh, but I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot about you know, the different religions, you know, why we do certain things that we do. Um, but, you know, when you said that, that religion took on another context as far as like the digital transformation, what I thought was really interesting was even when I was a kid, there was a, a series of books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Of course. And it was, a, you know, a science fiction book and, and you yeah. had different alternative uh, outcomes based on your decision making. Of course. We all did those, right? Yeah. And I, I think religion has the same context as well. Like there's totally different paths you can go depending on which choices you make in life. Right. Absolutely. Um, but what I found over the years is that the more I got ingrained with the internet, the more I got deep into some of the darker spaces and some of the lighter spaces is that it's definitely taking on a life of its own and it's affecting a lot of lives in the process. Um, you talked about the shooting games and that seems to be the trend. And it, it kind of scares me. The, the way that we've revolutionized technology, the way that we're really embedding it, not only in our own minds, but our bodies and everything around us, um, it kind of paints a scary picture. 
you know, when you think about EMPs, you start thinking about cyber attack and, yep. and the different routes that people are going. And the fact that, you know, I just did a documentary about kids in gaming. And what I found really interesting is you can put a kid in front of a game and they'll get addicted to it. You take them away from that game and they're a completely different person. Um, you have to go through that withdrawal and they're frustrated and they're angry, but they play that out in a game. So where do you think that gaming and, and technology is going for the younger generations? Well, one, one of the things that if I'm with you, I mean, I'm tracking all the different points you made. One, I want to say about the esoteric paths. I, I have a hunch that anybody who takes seriously the spiritual path on which they set forth will wind up exploring uh, those varieties, and I certainly did. I went to the human potential movement stuff. Um, part of my experience in England when I joined the Church of England was to try to make sense of what was happening, which was uh, you could only call paranormal. Mm -hmm. And now that I've gotten to be friends and acquaintances with people who did remote viewing, there and and I did exercises in church. You can imagine coming to a class in my church in Utah, and I said we're going to do psychometry. Everybody holds an object receive psychic impressions and then reports out. The point was that I wanted to make sure people knew that their boundaries are porous mm -hmm. and that information and energy is constantly moving from us to others. And you pick it up unconsciously, but the more conscious you become of what you pick up, the better you get. And the more intuitive you, you get, and ultimately you wind up all the way at non-local consciousness, which is what the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14, said to me, he realized coming back from the moon was what exists. He, he would go in and out of an altered state. And in the altered state, he saw that everything is interrelated. Everything connects with everything else, which we now know from physics is of course true. And non-altered is what we're doing now, which is we see things as separate. Well, apparently it's very easy to use separate things to build uh, and make stuff happen, i.e. society. You can't have nothing but mystics right? Because uh, there'd be no buildings. Uh, we'd just all be gone. We'd all be ecstatic and non-functional. So you have to have a mix. How many mystics can a society tolerate? Well, that's what genetic engineering is going to show us. If we tweak the DNA uh, of embryos to make more mystics, uh, it may skew society in, in the wrong way. But the, the point I want to make is, yeah, the esoteric path the deeper experience of consciousness and what it can disclose when you open yourself to that, that's what spirituality and religion was about for me. And therefore I, I did thrive by attracting people who wanted to go adventuring uh, in spirituality. Now, I said, as I realized what was happening with young people is I could see clearly the difference between the digital world and the print world because I happened to live on the cusp between them and understood how text works and how writing had transformed human consciousness because I had been uniquely placed uh, like at the Terminator on the moon. You know, where the Terminator is, you'd see light and dark, you see rills and craters, but when it's all white, you see nothing. When it's all dark, you see nothing. The Terminator on the moon is like the cusp between ma major cultural change. And I could see what was coming because I had a foot in both worlds. And I would flip back and forth, like Edgar Mitchell said, uh, b between them. But I could see that the next generation, and here we are several later, uh, is going to be so assimilated to the digital world. And you, you can tell that's happening when all the parents are moaning 
Um, they won't get off their games. Well, I, I, I remember uh, a guy named Tubby. I wrote a little column about it once way back when. Uh, I said, but now they call him Mr. Tubby. I was told to go to Tubby, who was always reading, always inside reading. And they said, try to get him outside playing sports. Well, now he's Mr. Tubby, CEO of a major technology company. Uh, and the point is young people assimilated into that way of doing things, being, thinking. Uh, they're integrated into it the same way. We didn't uh, think it was unusual to read, you know, but if we look back at history, we were part of a, a brand new kind of society where people were, were literate. When you go back to the early 20th century, most people didn't graduate high school. It was a very big deal. But to really read and be literate um, is only a very recent phenomena for society. Well, it's the same with digital. They were assimilated and people would say, oh, they're not going to be doing X, Y, and Z. Well, they're not. They're not. I mentioned the movie Chinatown. I got in trouble doing a talk for O'Reilly when I said, it's Chinatown, Jake. It's Chinatown. And this bond, the woman who was handling me came up. She said, you know, none of them know what you were talking about. That movie is from 1973. And then, then I have to think, I think, my God, next year it'll be 50 years uh, and when a hacker came up to me oh. at DEF CON, I referred to Hal. Um, you know, I can't do that, Dave. Uh, a hacker came up and said, Who, who's Hal? And I realized that my points of reference were ancient. I, and, and, and this was confirmed when somebody tweeted at DEF CON, you may think Richard Thiem is just a deranged old man wandering around the con, but he still has some good things to say. And I said, thank you for sending me that. I think it's a compliment. I didn't know they thought I was a deranged old man wandering around the con, but now I just turned 78. I want, I'm writing my eighth book. Uh, wow. The book that came out last year is the best ever. Uh, I'll just mention it's called Mobius, a memoir. Mm -hmm. I, after 25 years of working with all the people to whom I refer, the, that I referenced, um, the friend at NSA said, you know, you can't ever discuss what we talk about. Uh, unless you write fiction. He said, fiction is the only way you can ever tell the truth. And he was right. I've published 37 short stories and two novels. And this is my, I'm working on my sequel to Mobius. I poured 25 years of understanding into the story of an intelligence professional who hit a speed bump mm -hmm. um, and, and became a whistleblower. And now the second book is, what is it, what is it like to be a whistleblower? And I've talked to plenty of them. Um, and then there will be a third, I believe, completing the trilogy, incorporating some of the spiritual depths that I've never been able to speak about mm -hmm. because consensus reality just doesn't allow you to talk about those things. And so as I've moved into these other domains of understanding, I have lived more and more in non-consensual reality, uh, understood and, and sustained and created by a, a, a small group. Mm -hmm. an elite. And by getting in, interested in UFO phenomena, which I did as a priest when a fighter pilot told me, oh, it's real. All right. We chase them. We can't catch them. Mm -hmm. So I spent 44 years pursuing as much truth about that as I could. And that takes you into non-consensual reality in a big way. Finally, government says, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was talking to somebody and they said, uh, she said, I, I, I was talking to the guy across the table. I said, what do you think about all this revelation stuff from Luis Alessandro? And, and he said, she said to me, he said the same thing you just said. 
And what I said is it's real. It's been here for a long time. We've known it for a long time. And it's a serious security confrontation and threat. And I found out who she was referring to who said the same thing I did was um, vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, my sources go in many directions and all the way up. And so I don't have any question anymore. I haven't had any question for a long, long time. Uh, we've been visited, we've been observed, and people say, why don't they communicate? I said, do you know what a UFO is? And she said, sure. Yeah, in other words, they've communicated. <laughs> this is it, here we are. We're just gonna show you here and there and everywhere. And you're gonna put it together over decades because your little paltry timeline, little monkey boy, is not our timeline. And uh, you know you have to think very, very differently to try to grasp the strangeness of the phenomenon and how it manifests itself. Because for one thing, the technology is so beyond what we could grasp, which was the threat initially. And we don't want anyone else to get that because then they own the earth. Uh, but the other is the impingement upon consciousness more and more people, I've interviewed so many who've had encounters and they sometimes say, I want to be, a, I changed my life. I'm going to be a priest. They become profoundly interested in eco, uh, in, in environmental issues. They have a profound spiritual transformation as a result of even a simple encounter with a glowing 30 foot disc that hovers over their car, stops it, and then moves on. Um, I've, I want to explore what I've learned about that. And I've learned a lot more than most people get a chance to learn from, from in, interviewing people. So that'll be the third book. Uh, so I passed over into an acceptance of the fact that my audiences and my readership are going to be people who they want to know how the intelligence world really works. They, they want to see the, the meat on the end of your fork, naked lunch, William Burroughs called it, see reality for what it is. And that's what I've been passionately committed to in literature, in ministry, and the last 30 years of my life. Um, so it's expanding your consciousness, right? It's taking literally and seriously what you discover to be deeply true. And once you discover it, it changes you forever. And you can't go back and pretend you haven't had an inside out transformation because you have. Yes. It's, it's really fascinating too, because coming from, intelligence industry I, I was intelligence in the military crypto, uh, cryptologist yeah. and that kind of background plus you know i've always been interested in radio trying to listen for any kind of rogue sounds or signals or, or whatever right. i can collect that that whole questioning everything um and you spoke about remote viewing which i find really fascinating because as a kid i started having the ability of being able to tell where people that i were connect that i was connected with what kind of environment they were in whether it be, you know, a table in front of them with a, with a glass or I could tell them exactly what they were wearing. Um, but it was because I think that connected that, that connection between the two people. Um, I still do that. Sometimes I still have the ability to, you know, be able to, to call someone and say, Hey, I know what room you're sitting in. This is what it looks like. And it freaks my mom out. Um, but it's, it's something that I enjoy. And, and it's, it's a gift that I had when I was a kid that I never really understood. But as I got older, I realized that, I have those connections because those people are close to me and that connection exists. You got it. You got it. And that's what I discovered in the ministry. Yeah. The people for whom I genuinely cared as deeply as I could. Mm -hmm. um, we had such a connection. Um, you know, there's a joke about, Oh, I knew they were going to call before that happened so many times. It wasn't even noticeable anymore. Mm -hmm. 
I and I did these classes called the Invisible World to show people that the paranormal is normal. It's not paranormal. It's a human condition and facet and attribute, which if you do not believe it exists, will not happen to you. Right. And 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 that's the key thing to know that it's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is women have a some women have a chromosomal uh, alteration that lets them see more colors. And this one woman who became an artist would tell her parents when she was a child what she saw. And they said, you can't see it. And she stopped seeing it. And then when she learned that it was scientifically valid, she began to see it again. And now she sees all the colors. In other words, her brain took got the message. You may think you're seeing it, but you're not. So I'm not going to show it to you anymore. And then it got the message. Oh, that was a mistake. Let's look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so what I'm wanting to know is, did you once you discover that you have a uh, an, an inclination or intuitive understanding? You're describing clairvoyance and telepathy. Do you then do? And this is what spiritual practices are. They're training programs to to deepen the tools and techniques of going there and doing that and experiencing that. And so, um, have you done anything personally? to in, enhance, sharpen, hone, clarify your ability to do it. And yes, people do freak out. So what I learned in the ministry, even though I uh, wasn't always psychic, but you were very intuitive. When I first started doing counseling, I thought, oh, I can see what's happening. And I would tell them what's happening and they'd run screaming out of the office because they couldn't handle it, right? Uh, so I had to learn, I needed to know, see clearly, but say to myself clearly, and then find how to make that apparent to other people, tell them in a way that's helpful to them. That's what counseling really, really was. Yeah. But if you've got the gift, you don't want to not just let it happen to happen, but you want to enhance the likelihood that it will happen. Because if nothing else, it enriches your understanding of how deeply interconnected we are, right? Oh, exactly. That's a great, great gift. I mean, I, I was tempted to test it. I won't. I was going to turn off the camera and ask you what kind of slacks I'm wearing. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was curious. So back when I was younger, I used to have a lot of deja vu. And it's, it's gotten less and less. But I remember this incident when I was in third grade. Um, I think it went on for about three weeks. I would literally get home that night and then realize that I had already just started the day (laughs) because I had already lived through the day, but it took me about three weeks before I realized that every day was just a repeat of the night before. I don't know if I was just dreaming it or what happened, but you know, I tried to tell my parents and they're like, oh, you, you know, you're, and I was like, no, you don't understand. I think I'm in a dream. And then I wake up and I'm going to school and it's happening again. And I'm like, I don't know how to say other than deja vu what that is. And it happens on occasion. There's just this overwhelming sense of like dreamlike state when it happens. And I'm like, I've been here. I've done this. This has happened before. But it like by the, I don't know, like, like I said, about three weeks in, I was starting to go like, what, what is going on? Like, how, how is it that I'm living every day beforehand? Plus it's school and I'm in third grade. So who wants to do that every day? Like, right. <laughs> so it was kind of getting annoying, but um, I was just curious, like, uh, as far as like deja vu, what do you think of like things like that? As far as the, the, the spiritual side of things, because I was raised in the deep South. So religion has always been, forced upon me more than anything. Um, and a very different kind of religion. 
Yes. And so I did a lot of studying of religions when I was in, uh, you know, in my teenage years as well. I had like an encyclopedia of all religions at that time, you know, so I like read that um, and uh, didn't make my parents very happy because <laughs> I started questioning everything. So, right, right. Um, but yeah, what do you feel about like, um, you know, different types of spiritual, you know, like deja vu and stuff like you consider that a type of like spiritual or well, what you're describing deja vu is a sense of having been here before mm -hmm. and i don't know if you're describing exactly how people use that in common parlance you're describing what sounds like precognition and you're describing in dream states you were open uh you know at, at the very uh, obvious level uh you're taking in so much more information than you know and your unconscious is processing it. And sometimes your unconscious wants you to know things. I, I just posted a thing, I don't know if you saw it on LinkedIn, uh, a letter that I wrote to my kids about a big dream and a Jungian sense. And it was about what that dream revealed to me. Um, and when I was writing Mobius, before I went to bed, I would sit there and think of where I had left off and where I needed to begin in the morning. And I always woke up ready to do it because the brain worked on it. So what I, what, it, what I do is listen to people like yourself telling me what they experienced. And it was precognitive because in our dream states, time is a different animal than the way our conscious mind sorts time out, which is first a cultural assimilation and second of a beneficial illusion of as if things stream the way we uh, have been taught by our society to build them. Uh, in, in, into a cognitive structure. So I just hear you. And you weren't content to, to just take a black and white, Jesus loves you, don't even question anything else. Uh, Jesus would not put up with the bullshit that is <laughs> coming, coming down the line as religion. You know, one of the hardest things about being in the ministry was trying to ask, ask people to look at what Jesus did and what happened to him. You know, he, he wasn't chairman of the board. He was crucified, right? Well, why? Because he couldn't let go of the wholeness and integrity with which he advocated we all live our lives in a wholeness in relationship to the deeper structures of the universe. Well, that gets you in trouble with consensual reality, with society. And, um, you know, we talked about the intelligence community. Well, I won't go there. So organized religion is actually what turned me away from religion. It's not that I'm not spiritual and have faith. Um, there's because there, one, there's so many. And when you start researching, right, you start to see that there is a common thread, right? People want to be good, do well. Um, yeah. It can be kind of, it can be used for bad. Like, um, you know, people in power can use that as an abuse technique as well. But overall, the core values of all religions are to, you know, love one another, be good to your neighbors, you know, uh, do, you know, do things that are not harmful to each other, right? Like the core values. It is that basic. That it is. It really Jews is. 614 laws. And they said, follow these. And yeah. then Jesus and some rabbis said, well, all you need, you need 10 commandments, just need 10, not 614. And then that got broken down. Jesus and some rabbis said, well, all you really need is two. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that breaks down to just one. Do the loving thing. Well, that becomes situation ethics and people go crazy because they want to be given a beginner style black and white rule book on how do I behave under these conditions. And that's not the way the world presents itself to you. It fires itself at you 
at point blank range, range every every morning. Uh, do the loving thing. That that's it. Um, I, I I think about how I think I think how it would be so different had Constantine not taken certain books out of the Bible and had the Catholic Church acknowledged Dead Sea Scrolls and some of those other facts that were there that we decided as a civilization to extract and exclude from the regular teachings. Absolutely. The editor is the equivalent of the person who counts the votes, right? And, and Stalin said, I don't care who's voting. It's, I want to count the votes. And right. I, I got through college, Northwestern, working with the Daily Machine in Chicago. And uh, I, was, I was at Democratic headquarters and my Kennedy was elected. And around 10 o'clock at night, I got very anxious. I'm a kid. I'm 16 years old. And I said, doesn't look so good. He's hundreds of thousands of votes behind. And this old Paul, he says to me, kid, is this your first one? And I said, yeah. He says, kid, don't worry. We got this. I said, but look at that. He says, kid, don't worry. And then all night long, the votes changed and changed and changed. Bottom line was they were waiting for the votes from downstate so they knew what they needed to create. And he won by a little bit, but it was enough. And uh, it's like when somebody asked me in Australia, how could you reelect George Bush a second time? I said, in America, if you steal the election fair and square, you get to keep it. That's right. It's true <laughs> until current. Well, that's where they say, you know, history is uh, written by the winners, right? So right. they get Absolutely. to choose. They get to choose. And yeah, um, another thing that I learned actually during being method methodized um, when I was a teenager, I had to go through, you know, the courses and stuff. They, um, one of the most interesting facts, which is kind of hilarious because it also made me question them, is that the old, like the Old Testament versus the New Testament in Christianity, they pointed out, which I was kind of actually happy that they did. Um, they had started to accept the Big Bang Theory and some science into, you know, like Christianity at that time. Um, but they, you know, the Old Testament had an old angry God. Well, times were old and in those times, times were tough. So of course the God came down as wrathful and vengeful. And then as things kind of eased up and got a little bit better, like Jesus became a little bit nicer. We have Jesus and everything's nicer. And lovely. Has <laughs> evolved. It has, it definitely has evolved with, and part of a huge part of religion kind of, you have to look at that culture, right? How, how has their culture evolved over time and stuff? Oh well, yeah. The, the God of the old Testament. I mean, I say, why is there not any anti-Jebusitism? or anti-parasitism, but there's anti-Semitism. Well, because they're Jews. Well, what happened to the other guys? The Jews killed them. Yes. They look over and they say, we want that pasture. And God would say to them through a prophet, go get it. Uh, they were Putin uh, on, on camels. You know, I mean, it's just, well, it was, it, it, it's just the Old Testament is full of, full of blood and thunder. And Mark Twain wrote a wonderful book about a uh, guy who went to his pastor, he said, I think I want to become a Christian. How? He says, well, read the Bible and then imitate God. So he read the Bible and then he shot his neighbor and he said, <laughs> uh, and he went on and on and he told the pastor what he'd done. And he said, why'd you do that? He said, well, I read the Bible and I was imitating God. And he said, well, yeah, well, uh, how's the weather been up where you are? Uh, but what I wanted to say was what both of you have said is when you begin to awaken as an individual to other ways of seeing things and for hackers, um, that's just a common story. I loved what I found online. I just threw myself into it. I intuitively followed the wires and the, and the non-wires. I followed the symbols, really, the symbolic representation 
of how information and energy moves in this digital reconstruction. Um, and then other people didn't understand. You need someone to, to help. And, and so one of the reasons I became an Anglican is I did have profound experiences, but I realized if I wasn't going to go crazy with this stuff, I needed uh, mentoring. Mm -hmm. I needed a structure that didn't dismiss what I'd experienced, all the lights and shadows and all the all this symbolic innuendo uh, that I was studying to filter into my consciousness, but I needed people to help me manage it. And then I was very, very fortunate to have two mentors, one the dean of the seminary, one the first bishop, who were the, the best mentors one could dream. And, and I came to the conclusion that in order for any organization or individual to function well, you need at least three things. Mutuality, you need others. Uh, you need feedback. And the more information moves, the more feedback loops you need. And that's why systems of information have gotten so complex because there's so many sensors, so much information and AI is showing us, not only am I gonna do things that you don't know how to do, I'm not gonna tell you how I do it, and, uh, but it's gonna work. Um, so are you gonna, are you with me or not? Well, the answer from society is, yeah, we don't know where else to go. Sure, we're with you. Uh, show us a drug that kills that kind of bacteria even if we had no idea such a drug existed, because you've looked at 500,000 possibilities of chemical combination, and you found one that killed that bacteria, just let us patent it. That's the only deal was you're an AI, you can't patent it, you can't make money, you're not real. You know, well, I am real. Well, yeah, but not in that way. Uh, so we need mutuality feedback and we need accountability. And right. this is where the values come in that we're talking about it doesn't have to come from an organized religion but you have to have accountability for a vision for some kind of ethos some kind of bottom line and that's where leadership comes in leadership of any organized structure has to impose their understanding of uh, of an ethos on the organization on the system or else it's, it's not going to be there so my, my thoughts to... on my thoughts on ai are a little different i think i think my thoughts on ai is that i don't think we can obtain true AI until we understand exactly what consciousness is. And without, without that, that level of, I guess, knowledge or, or insight into what really makes something conscious, I think it'd be hard to replicate that consciousness into artificial intelligence. I, I think you're probably right. Sure. But I don't think we need to know what consciousness is for AI to do some of the remarkable things it's, it's currently doing. Right. Right. Unless you're able piece the other day about how many, uh, it's dual use. Everything we're talking about is dual use. You asked about technology and shoot them ups and, and that's where the ethos and accountability comes in. It can be used for good, it can be used for evil, but that was the same with words. That was this, you know, lies and truth were Siamese twins joined at the lips. As soon as somebody could speak, they could lie. Um, and we know chimpanzees deceive one another. Oh, there's banana. And you mm -hmm. walk past, you know, the stories. Chimpanzee walks with the troop past it, and then he circles around behind, gets a banana. Uh, they, they engage in deception operations. Uh, that's just always been with us. So uh, we, we, we do need to have some criteria for, for doing things that work. And as I said before, they should work on behalf of win-win. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, you're going to get, you really are going to get a Putin. Uh, and a, and a uh, uh, Ukraine. But on the other hand, one of my children said, uh, 
Dad, was it any different when we went into Iraq? I just don't remember that we had nightly news showing us the horrific villages we destroyed, the people we killed, the bodies strewn about. In fact, if somebody revealed what we did, like a drone going wild, killing lots of civilians by mistake, what they did is put Chelsea Manning, who's Chelsea then, right? Yeah. Uh, put Manning in prison and tortured him. They put him in solitary confinement, which is torture. We listed among the tortures we use. And that the novel I wrote, Mobius, um, uh, it was doing torture that, that impacted him so traumatically that he couldn't, couldn't give his assent to, to what they were doing. And that was drawn on the people I've talked to years ago before it had been outed, before rendition was a word everyone understood. I was talking to people who tortured people and I was talking to people who had been tortured and it was horrific. And it took a therapist to tell me, uh, you know, you're showing symptoms of secondary trauma. Uh, take, take a break. And that, that kind of experience led to the talk I gave at DEF CON called Playing Through the Pain. It's been seen by a lot of people. And someone keeps pointing out, I sat there listening to people sobbing around. And I'm not kidding. DEF CON mentioned a thousand geeks in a room and you hear sniffles and sobbing. Because I realized I had been listening for so many years to, in a ministerial way, what people told me the work did to them, the impact of it. And I wrote to a lot of colleagues and said, I want to address this. Can you share stories? Over 50 people, uh, intelligence, security, military, corporate, sent stories and built that talk in the next one called The Road to Resilience, in which I really urged people to take seriously the traumatic impact of just doing the, the work because of the nature of the work and what it exposed you to. to. So you want to be in uh, Air Force, uh, AFOSI, uh, you mind looking for weeks and weeks at child pornography, so you become desensitized to it. Yeah. Uh, oh, you can't handle that. All right, but do you get help for not being able to handle it? Um, the, the work is is daunting, and the fact is, when you work in intelligence and you work at the, in the bowels of security, if you don't encounter those gray areas, and if you don't confront, as friends of mine in the intelligence community call it, the face of evil. Mm. And the abyss stares into you. You know, you have to have a spiritual structure for dealing with this because it's not going to go away. Yeah, and, 100%. And the digital world just raises it to a metal level mm. uh, because of the speed with which things are happening. And, and above all, the, the abstraction, the level of abstraction. Um, and it is an elite. I mean, there are a lot of people who pretend to be an elite, but there are elites mm. who pretty much, you know, you might include yourself as one have a clue understand what it is that this stuff is and what it's about and how it can be manipulated for good or for for evil and so it's great that we can have a zoom talk like this it saved my life during covid um but it's not great that zoom can be so hackable yes etc <laughs> etc et right yeah exactly you know working in intelligence it, it, it definitely is a different type of environment and they're different people um, you know, from the point where I entered into the military and, and got the SF-86 and the background check and the clearance and all that good stuff, uh, to the point where I got out of the military after, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, it took me a good 15 years to go file for disability from VA because it took me that long to take a look at everything I've been through and everything I'd seen and experienced and decided, 
am I okay with this? Is this something that, that I can go to bed at night and go, you know, I did, I did what I was supposed to do. Um, so then I, I started looking at all the effects it had on me over the years and decided that, you know, maybe I should get help for that. Maybe I should get disability. You know, maybe I should have them help me out where I sacrifice for them. Um, but I think a lot of people go through that. You know, I didn't necessarily have, you know, missing limbs or anything like that. But, and that's part of the reason why I didn't go get, you know, disability because I felt bad. I, I didn't want to take away from those guys. But what I realized is that they have more than enough for everybody. Absolutely. And just having that exposure, even if you weren't in the middle of it, just having that exposure to that intelligence yeah. does things to you. It does things to your psyche. It, abs- it absolutely does. And, and at some point you lose, you, you tell yourself stories to make it, uh, to ameliorate the impact. But at some point you lose your innocence and, and you realize you're, you're knee deep in it or eye deep in hell. Uh, and you're part of it. And even like Mike, you, your dad, you know, and his background, my dad was in the military, went in several, you know, Vietnam, um, Afghan or Iraq and everything. Um, just even being a child of someone who's already experienced that you, that those side effects, um, of how they react to things and how they process information and pass it down to, to us. Right. So even the children are affected by that. So getting that help ahead of time to help people process, which is relatively new. Like my father, I think had started to kind of like go towards the light of psychology and and stuff for himself, um, you know, towards the end. But, you know, at the same time, like it, it's, it's good to get help ahead of time because you don't understand the everlasting effects. Like there are things that my father would not talk about. You didn't, you men didn't cry. He was from the war. Like I never knew exactly what he did. He never talked about it. It was too traumatic. Right. Yeah, so right. And how does that pass down further further down the line? Right. So not only, the, not only that, but talk about paranormal experiences in those situations. Yeah. Like you would be surprised, maybe not surprised, but shocked, I guess. Um, the people that, that I had communication with that experienced like really horrible things on the battlefield and experienced paranormal effects. And I'm not talking like, you know, ghosts or demons i'm talking about real paranormal effects where they felt like something is attached to them and and they just can't get rid of it and you know they they label as ptsd they label as you know whatever but these guys had real paranormal experiences i mean you know things you can't things you can't quantify things you can't describe or make sense of that's exactly right you may not be able to articulate what it is but you know it's real yeah you've experienced it and you know, going back to the UFO thing just briefly, that's one of the things people often report is that they have paranormal experiences, especially telepathic communication during the experience. And oh, I'm just, my head is now flooded with 44 years of stories that I've heard and I wanna do, do justice to that, but I don't wanna leave what you just said because we're kind of wrapping up pretty soon. And what you just said is the cornerstone of the whole thing. It's a system. It's why family therapy is needed, not individual therapy. Everybody in the system affects everybody else. Everybody has a role to play. And if the key person doesn't ameliorate the symptoms and their response to the symptoms, then it, uh, from generation to generation, it goes from generation to generation. And that's why spirituality, as we've been talking about it in a deeper way, is 
is a societal level operation for the whole human race. Once we recognize that we are all in it together, mm. then we each can be responsible for doing what we need to do. Uh, and that goes all the way back to those courses I said I taught. I wanted people to know that they were putting out emotion all the time, whether they knew it or not. And therefore, the Christian paradigm was about having some kind of a structure of accountability so that you would be moving toward the direction of putting out what you wanted to put out. In other words, we talked about love is the bottom line. Well, if you think you're loving, but you're really not being loving at all, um, can you get the feedback so that you can make the changes? And, and here you are at the serenity prayer again. Yeah. Uh, we can control almost nothing, but the little bit we can get our hands on is everything uh, for us and in our lives. And for your dad, it was you. Because well, even, even as you speak, there's a, a, a vibration of how you feel about all of that, right? It, it didn't just all go away. Right. So, and I, th so. and I think everybody's it, interconnected too. So you talk about the connection between people and, and giving off love. Well, I look at it as like a, a spiritual chain. So each person gives off a certain vibration and those make the links in the chain. Well, if you have Absolutely. one, weak, if you have a weak link that, that isn't awake or hasn't woke up yet, that's where the disconnect, I think, is. And I think as a society, we're starting to wake up a little bit more piece by piece. Well, I, I do think that Dan Gear, you know Dan Gear, mm -hmm. Pretty bright guy. Mm -hmm. he, he sent me a passage the other day, but the, the gist of it was, uh, yeah, there's this terrible stuff. But, you know, 98% of the human race, we're just good, good enough people trying to do the right thing, being generous. You, you see the swarming, like I used to say it was like white corpuscles racing to a wound. Uh, somebody was injured in, in the community and everybody just mobilizes their best self to what can I do to help? Well, you can't operate that way all the time, but you can do it with intensity and meaning and purpose and intentionality in the moment of, of need. Um, so, and most people do that. Most of us are not so bad. Right. Uh, but the context, as you say, can inflect <laughs> us in the direction of doing things which are kind of bad. And then we have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess it's been about an hour, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, Richard. I, I could go on forever with you, Richard. I could sit here for hours and just yeah. pick your brain to pieces because there's so many questions I still have unanswered that I, that I still want to talk to you about. So hopefully we can get a, a second episode at some point so I can sure, pick I your brain you. a little bit more. Before um, you gonna... leave, hold on. I have, okay, I want to jump back for just a second because you mentioned um, how... And I know who Hal is, <laughs> but um, I love, so I have always forced myself after high school and being forced to read, to jump back to different periods in time and read literature, just so that my brain can comprehend the different time periods and get you know, all that good stuff, right? Um, same with movies. So the last older movie that I watched was Paper Man. So, and that one was... I, I want to say, I, I can't remember, 79, something like it was, it's older and it's about credit card fraud. Um, it's amazing. Uh, it's the, the quality on YouTube was not, but my question for you is, could you give me two picks for an older movie and a, a piece of literature that you would suggest I could read? Oh boy. Well, 
for literature, it's obvious. I mean, Mobius, <laughs> a memoir, is the best thing you can read. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be choosing. I have to plug it because, see, see I, nobody else is doing marketing, right? So I have to plug <laughs> it when I can. Uh, but if you look at the reviews on, it, on Amazon, they're all real. I didn't make them up. Nobody made them up. No bots. <laughs> the response was terrific to this book. And I get private messages from people in the intelligence community saying, you articulated on our behalf what we can't say. Uh, the complexity of the challenges, uh, even from a KGB illegal who who was here for the KGB for 10 years before he was nailed by the FBI. And he said, Mobius is surreal and real. Uh, oh, so on the list. Uh, so, I, you, you know, for literature, I mean, I, it's very eclectic, the kinds of literature I read. I mean, I do love James Joyce, who I studied with Richard Elman at, at Northwestern. Um, so to me, Ulysses is, is really just a, a bracing tonic of reality, uh, beautifully, beautifully put. Uh, man, when I, I just finished reading a whole bunch of Clifford Simak. He's just a, a, a Midwestern writer that, that I fell in love with as a science fiction writer. But again, years and years and years ago, I reread The Great Gatsby mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, because I think it's it's really a, a fine novel. Uh, Raymond Chandler is, I have to admit, I read everything he wrote uh, multiple times. And uh, I always go back to John Updike. And I'll tell you why I do that. When I didn't know if I should leave ministry, if I'd start writing again, I wanted so much to. I felt the inner impulse, but I thought, I don't know if I can do that. I, and I started writing a short story that turned into one called More Than a Dream really good story about alien contact. And I sent the not so good story, but it was a draft. I sent it to John Updike. I got his address in Massachusetts. I said, this is who I am. What do you think? Should I quit or should I? And I still have the letter he wrote back that said, this is right up there with the best that I've been reading. Don't quit. You never forget people like that. So when I read John Updike, I mean, I can see all his, the peccadillos of his varied and complex life, but when you love somebody, you forgive everything, right? I mean, okay, so you did that. Uh, yeah, I still love you. Uh, and if you don't love somebody, then I'll <laughs> the minor attraction. Uh, on movies, yeah, Chinatown. Uh, Chinatown, Blade Runner. The original Blade Runner. The second one was pretty good, but Blade Runner, um, Body Heat. Mm -hmm. uh, an update on, on noir that was beautifully done. This recent movie, um, Nightmare Alley, uh, is beautiful, beautifully done. It's, it's dark, but noir is dark. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so I watch TCM. I watch a lot of old noir movies just to see how they do the tropes. Uh, but Chinatown, I still think, is one of the, the best. I'm uh, sorry, Roman Polanski, like 13-year-old. I mean, <laughs> You know, mileage varies, right? Great. But it's still a great, great movie. And well, those are the ones I, I've watched so many times. Body Hit, I could do, I, uh, even funny things like uh, Groundhog Day. I can, I can do the whole, you know, and My Dinner with Andre, uh, I thought was uh, definitely one, one of the very, very best. Yeah, there are certain movies I just go back to and, and watch again and again. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and the corollary to that, unfortunately, is we watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday night. We record it. Uh, it takes about 10 minutes to watch the whole program because it's usually, this is terrible. Go through it. This is terrible. 
then you get to Weekend Update, watch it, then, oh, God, look at what they're doing now. Uh, and then they have singers on. And, and I, I confess, at our age, we don't get it. They sing kind of choking off everything, very, very soft. And what they're relying on is lighting and extraordinary peacock-like costumes. <laughs> but they can't sing. A lot yeah. of them cannot carry a tune. And and my wife and I were both old people. We say, what the, what, <laughs> what happened when we were asleep? So take what I advise with a grain of salt. Uh, at a certain point in life, you look back on the movies and books that were foundational for you. Um, and, and, and you just keep returning to them. Mm -hmm. and they're building blocks of your psyche because they give you insight at a critical moment of your growth and development. Yep. Mine, uh, probably one of the three, well, two or three, got quite a few, but uh, I keep going back to it. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Ma Maintenance with, yes. by Robert Zierig and yes. uh, the Tao and Day of Pooh, <laughs> ironically. I think mine is the Gnostic Bible. What's that? I think mine was the uh, Gnostic Bible. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. There's some good stuff in there. Yeah. Really Cut good stuff. The there I am. <laughs> that and uh, the Book of Enoch. Interesting. Interesting. Shame we threw them out. Yeah, right. So it was right. great having you on, Richard. Great I, I to talk to you both. I mean, this, this has been epic. Very yeah. energizing. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again sometime. And Maybe we'll I'll have to see you at DEF CON this year. I've actually wore my DEF CON shirt. Last year was my first year, but I wore I wore it for you. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, well, it's a community of, of faith. Believe yep. absolutely, absolutely. Well, I will Wonderful. definitely be in touch with you, and and good luck with uh, the next book. Um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go back and read Mobius again. So I'm really excited about it. Just being able to yeah, talk to you I can and ask people to do is buy ten copies, give them as gifts. You know, tell all your friends about it. Blah, blah, blah. It's terrible. I mean, you hate to be a self-marketer, right? You sound so absurd, but well, I will help you with that. I'll put I'll put it in the show notes, uh, the link to the Amazon uh, store right. so that you, they can buy it. And uh, you know, it was a pleasure and it was a complete honor to be able to talk to you and then pick your brain for, for uh, an you're, hour. you're one of the giants and you are one of the giantesses. Uh, so thank you. Great conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Bye. See you guys later. Yeah. Bye.